as he's with us again. Great to have you. Thank you very much. God bless you. Please be seated. So these are the brave people who have come back for another dose. God bless you, the dedicated ones. Yes. Yes, he's got it right in the middle. I love your Pastor James because I'm a stickler for that too. You've got to have the pulpit in the middle. Otherwise, the blessing of God cannot come. <laughs> I mean, some guy just slap it up, but it's not even straight. <laughs> I remember every Sunday morning, they'd slap it up, and I'd make sure it was right in the middle. You've got to do that. You need the blessing of God, yes. Um, and, of course, uh, that young man, Mick, was his name? Mick? Yes, he's into fashion, I can see. It's very exciting. Um, if you're as old as me, you've seen fashion go full circle and come back again. In fact, when I turned up at Bible school from country Queensland in New Zealand in the middle of the flower power revolution, I was dressed in a black suit with skinny leg jeans, which are now back in, of course, and uh, I had a thin black tie. And, of course, this was when flares were in, and floral shirts and round lapels. Anyone remember the round lapels? My goodness, they were something. Purple suits, pastel-coloured safari suits. So I turned up at Bible school with my black suit, my white shirt and my thin tie. I looked like a Mormon. <laughs> and I heard that, you know, you need to be conservative and have short hair. So I had something like this with a bit more on top in those days. And then my roommate, who was in the room with me for two years, bounced into the room wearing these ghastly coloured flared trousers. I mean, they were so... I, I looked at those trousers and I said, that'll be no good on the farm. You get a forky stick up your trousers <laughs> when you're walking around. Snakes can crawl up there. <laughs> and he had uh, this florally coloured shirt with round lapels. And uh, he had long, I mean long, carrot red hair. It was halfway down his back. And I thought, they won't let him in here. Who is this weirdo? And he jokingly told me some years later when he looked at me, he said, what have we got here? You know. So I've seen fashion come and go. In those days, wide ties were in. So I said to my mate, thin may be in, but fat's where it's at. <laughs> and uh, so I had to convert. In fact, when I came home from Bible school after being there for six months to visit my family, they didn't recognise me at the airport. <laughs> my hair was longer. I had these weird coloured flared trousers on with cuffs on the bottom <laughs> and a floral shirt. They're looking around the airport for me. And there I was, <laughs> totally transformed by the power of New Zealand. <laughs> Hallelujah. So I'm in now. I've got, I've got the, the thin skinny leg jeans. I've got some stretch ones at home. They're, they're really in, aren't they? The stretch jeans. Buy them in Sri Lanka for 30 bucks. Good value. And uh, anyway, if you just hang on to your ties, they come in and out, you know. I've got a supply of fat ones and thin ones and I just change them on the rack. <laughs> You know, I've seen thin ones be in twice, probably in the last 30 years. Fat's where it's at. What's in now, by the way? I don't wear tyres anymore. Are thin ones or fat ones in? Who cares? 
It's not that important, is it? Oh, hallelujah. Well, look, I've just thoroughly enjoyed being with you today and uh, enjoyed the hospitality of Pastor Mel and his wife. And just we had some good Thai curry for lunch. Anyone here like curry? Hotter the better. I mean, if your eyes aren't watering and you're not sweating, it's not hot enough. Just cleans out the system. I love a good hot curry. So we had a, a mild curry for lunch, but it was okay. And I've just enjoyed being in your wonderful city and here with the wonderful people of this church. And I've enjoyed every moment of being with you. Tonight, I would like to talk to you about something that's very dear to my heart and something that I would like to see happening in the church in a greater way. You know, uh, I've done a lot of research about the church and church planting and all sorts of things related to increasing the church in the last few years. It's all I talk about when I teach in Sri Lanka and Bangladesh. And I, I discovered an interesting statistic just probably six months ago. The church is established in 196 countries around the world. There's 200 and something countries. And when I say established, that means it's got its own church that's being propagated within country. There might be some people groups who haven't heard the word yet, but you know, there's lots and lots of countries now where the church is established. 196 countries. And I can tell you that in all but 20 of those countries, the church is growing. Isn't that exciting? The sad thing is the 20 churches, the 20 countries where the church is not growing are the rich Western countries, Europe, America, Australia. Isn't that sad? We have the money. In fact, only 4% of Christians are now in Western countries. The other 96% are in Asia, Africa and South America. And uh, we've got the money. 4% of the Christians have 80% of the church's money. Which proves to me one thing. You don't need money to make the church grow. Hello? <laughs> Money's good. But that's not the issue that's missing in the church. Money is not what's missing in the church. I thought for many years it was. You know, I was a pastor. I was trying to collect money to do things. And there were three things I worried about as a pastor. Three things that kept me awake at night. Numbers. I know that none of you here that are in leadership would worry about these things. But, you know, attendance numbers. The amount of money in offerings and buildings. I never once worried about people going to hell without knowing Jesus. Isn't that terrible to admit that? Well, I thought it was. Some of you are looking at me like a strange person tonight, like a cow looking at a new gate. <laughs> Who is that fella up there? But you know, the thing I think that's missing in the church today is good old-fashioned discipleship. You know, when we have resources and <clears throat> buildings and programs, we rely on those things to make the church grow. And they're good things to have, don't get me wrong. But if you have a, a search back through the scriptures, you find that the early church had none of those things. And yet they grew alarmingly fast. And you know, the countries where the church is growing fast today, the church usually in those countries doesn't have a lot of Bible colleges. They don't have a lot of buildings. They don't have a lot of money. But they know how to make disciples. And I reckon we, we need a good old-fashioned return 
to simple discipleship. And that's what I want to talk about tonight. I want to show you how easy it is and how difficult we've made it when it shouldn't be difficult. Anybody can make disciples when you understand what it actually is. Are you ready to find out tonight? You better be ready. And the other thing I, I can tell you is that, uh, that most Christians live their entire life and never make one. Hello, it's gone very quiet in here. We attend lots of things in church. We go to prayer meetings, Bible studies, services, all good things to do. Don't tell Pastor James that I was preaching against that stuff. I'm not preaching against that stuff. But many Christians attend lots of stuff but never actually personally make a disciple. And I want to show you tonight that's the one thing Jesus asked us to do, to go and make disciples. I can also tell you tonight that if one out of every six Christians in the world made one disciple every year, and out of those disciples, they also made one disciple, one out of six of those, that the world would be converted to Christ in 10 years. 10 years. So on that score, I say we're not doing our job because we haven't converted the world in hundreds of years. And so I think people generally are not making disciples. So let's look into the scripture. Let's go first of all to Matthew 28, 18 to 20. Last words in that particular book. Let's just read. It says, And Jesus came and spoke to them, that's his followers, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things I've commanded you, and lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. You've heard that verse before? Well, let me ask you a few questions about it. Number one, who's talking? Jesus is talking. We all agree? Good. Who is he talking to? He's talking to his followers, his disciples, correct? Those people that were following him. Some people say it might have been a crowd of up to 500 that actually heard him say those words. But we know that the 12 that he mentored and had in his small group, they were part of that crowd. All right, so it's Jesus talking to his disciples. The next thing, question I want to ask is, when did he say it? Has he been to the cross? Right, he's been resurrected. What happens straight after he says these words? He goes up and he says, I'll return. And the person, you know, the angel standing there says, you know, he's gone, but he's coming back the same way. So what Jesus was actually doing in this last conversation he had with his disciples, uh, you know, as a person, a physical person, the last conversation, he was telling them what he wanted them to do in the space between then and when he returns. Is that a fair enough assumption? So here is their job description for however long he is gone. And it's only one thing. Go into all the world and make disciples. All right? So he's giving them their very last instruction. Now, if you've got kids, you know about last instructions because, um, you know, you, when you leave them with a relative for a few days, you sit them down before you put them in the car to take them over to Uncle and Auntie's place and you point the finger at them and they say, now listen here, while I'm gone... 
Do what Uncle and Auntie tell you to do. Eat your vegetables. Don't complain about pumpkin. Who hates pumpkin? I hate pumpkin. It shouldn't even be fed to pigs. It's degrading to the poor pigs. It's terrible food. Anyway, let's not go into that. I have a whole sermon about hating pumpkin, but we don't want to go into that tonight. So, and you give them the lecture. You know, you tell the boys, make sure you have a bath every day. You know, and don't just stay in the shower and turn the tap on for five seconds and get out, you know. Wet yourself. And, you know, you, you go through the whole thing. If they ask you to do chores, make sure you obey and do the chores. And then you say, when I come back, I'll be checking up to see whether you've done what I've asked. And then you take them over to Uncle Nanti and drop them off. And as you're screaming off in the car, you wind down the window and shout back, and don't forget to clean your teeth. (laughs) All right, it's the last instructions. Why do you give them just before you go? Because they'll forget if you do it any earlier. And you want them to remember your last words and do exactly what you've asked them to do until you return. So Jesus in this conversation is telling his followers exactly what he wants them to do until he comes again. And that is to go in all the world and make disciples of all nations. And interestingly, one of the things he includes in that scripture is teach people to obey. Lots of people know lots about the Bible, but they don't obey hardly any of it. For example, it says go in, into all the world and make disciples, and we pretty well disobey that. Do we not? <laughs> I don't expect you to travel the world doing it, but where we are. And, you know, I want to show you how easy that is tonight and how simple it is to actually obey this command and go into all the world and make disciples. Every one of you sitting in this building can do it. It's not for super Christians. You know, you don't have to be dressed in a blue cape. Or is it a red cape? It's a red cape and a blue suit and wear your undies on the outside (laughs) like Superman. You don't have to be like that. Not some sort of super Christian. Just normal Christians can make disciples. Someone encouraged me here. I was getting depressed for a moment. (laughs) I thought these people don't like what I'm saying. So... First of all, let me, just, let me just talk about this word disciple. What does it actually mean? What is the definition of the word disciple? And as I said, it's not some sort of super Christian, you know, with a, like a Western gunslinger with a Bible on each hip, you know, shooting from the hip, quoting King James verses ad nauseum. It's not somebody like that. The word disciple comes from a Greek word, I can say the Greek word. I'm not very good at Greek, but it's the word mathetes, M-E-T-H-E-T-E-S, mathetes. I'm probably saying it wrong, but the word simply means a learner. Hello? A disciple is a learner. It's not a super Christian. It's a learner. And if you understand the concept of a disciple in the days of Jesus, you can understand what he was telling them when he said, go into all the world and make disciples. You see, it was, Jesus wasn't the only person at that time in history to have disciples. It was a common thing. I guess the closest word we have in our language is the term apprentice. 
but not someone you send to TAFE because TAFE did not exist back then. True? It exists now. But basically, Jesus himself was a disciple of his father because he learned to be a carpenter by being an apprentice with his father. So all it simply meant is that he hung around his dad, watched his dad do stuff, copied his dad, and you know, eventually became skilled in the art of carpentry just by watching, observing, learning, trial and error. So that's what a disciple is. Someone who watches, learns and does. So let me ask you a question. Do you have the capacity to watch, learn and do? You do. And you know, the definition of a good disciple in any church is simply one who is a learner. Now, I've been in churches. I know there will be nobody like this in this church, but you've got some very old Christians in some churches who've stopped learning. They think they know everything. That's why they don't learn anymore. They sit there with their arms folded and look at the pastor and I sent him an email during the week questioning his theology. I know this would never happen here. You're such nice people, you know. But um, there are people in the church today who have probably more knowledge than I do about the Bible, but they are, they are not in a learning mode anymore. Therefore, they are, they are not disciples. Take, for, for example, the days of Jesus. There was these people called scribes and Pharisees. Remember them? They were not followers of Jesus. Did they know as much as Jesus? Probably more. They knew everything. They were the scholars of the Bible. But they did not learn from Jesus, therefore they were not disciples of Jesus. So a disciple is not about what you know, it's about whether you're prepared to learn. Is this easy enough to understand? Can you see anybody can be a disciple? All you've got to do is have an attitude of learning from Jesus. Wow. I mean, I've been around as a Christian since I was 16. I'm now nearly 95, so that's a long time. And I probably know a lot, but if I stop learning, I cease to be a disciple. If I think to myself, oh, I know it all. And when I say learn, I don't necessarily mean getting more degrees, that's all good. I just mean learning in my capacity as a believer and a follower of Jesus, trying to become more like Jesus, trying to obey his word. You know, I've discovered as a pastor, you know, in church for a long, long time, that some of the best disciples were new Christians. You know what I'm saying? Because they want to learn. They don't know much. But they want to learn and they'll find anybody who will stand still long enough to listen to them to tell them what they already know. I was telling you my, about my dad this morning. My dad left school at grade five. He couldn't even read when he became a Christian. He actually learned to read by reading the Bible. He was not an intellectually developed person. But I can tell you this, my dad in those first few years was a learner. And I mean, everybody heard the gospel from him. He came home from hospital as high as a kite, just like he was on drugs. 
you know, so excited about the miracle of healing he'd received and this newfound salvation in Christ. He stopped swearing straight away. He stopped drinking straight away. You know, he, uh, he even became nice to, the, to his wife. I'm not saying they never had another fight, but, you know, he was just so in love with his wife again. And he began sharing what he knew with my mother, his wife. And she harassed him and resisted him for 12 months. She didn't want any part of it. She was happy that he got religion, but she didn't want it. And us kids, we didn't want it either. We thought, Dad's gone crazy. Who's this, who's this replacement dad we've got? He's happy. He doesn't swear anymore. And I tell you, all of his relatives and all of his friends heard about Jesus because he was a learner. And when he learned something, he just wanted to pass it on. Now, I can tell you my dad's theology was shocking <laughs> in those first few years. For example, he went to, he got saved into a four-square gospel church. It's another denomination in Australia. And there was a little church, about 20 people in Toowoomba, and he started attending that. And they had a visiting missionary from Papua New Guinea. Missionaries are great. And this man used to speak so kindly to his wife and his children. My dad was fascinated with him and said in his own heart, I want to be like that guy. And so he tried to get an angle on what this guy's secret was. Then one day he heard him talking in this funny language. You know what I'm talking about. The order of the silly grin, we call them. You know, the people that have received the Holy Spirit and speak in other tongues. And... Uh, my dad heard him talk that and he asked a few other people, what's that guy doing? And they explained to him about the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And my, my dad thought, this is how bad his theology was, he thought that if you spoke in tongues it made you nice to your wife. <laughs> so he's just started asking God to be filled by the Holy Spirit so he could be nice to his wife. I don't know whether it's theologically correct. But that was his understanding. And I can tell you that lying in his bed one morning, about eight o'clock in the morning, he was just lying in bed and he said to God, well, if this Holy Spirit thinks for me and it'll help me be nice to my wife, Lord, why don't you give it to me right now? And the whole family heard him burst forth speaking other, other tongues in the bedroom. He spoke with such gusto, he sprayed his false teeth right out of his mouth. <laughs> right across the room. I mean, I call that the baptism of the Holy Spirit, the ejecting of the teeth. <laughs> wow. And when he got back to the farm, he had a dairy farm up near Serena. He went back to the farm and he got well enough. And, you know, all of his friends heard the gospel. He made disciples. He started leading people to Christ, taking them to church. He didn't know anything about the Bible. He just stuffed one on the head and said, read this. And he told them what he knew. He was not trained as a disciple maker. He wasn't, hadn't been through any course of study or anything like that. He was learning as he went. He was a learner. Therefore, he was a disciple. And in my experience, usually new Christians are the best disciple makers because they're keen to learn. Is this making sense to you? So if you're hungry and want to learn, that's all you need to be a disciple maker. Isn't that simple? You don't need to go to Bible school. You can do that if you like. 
But you don't sometimes go into Bible school, messes your head up so much, you forget how to make disciples. I'm spitting a bit tonight. So are we clear on this one simple point? To be a disciple, you just need to be a learner. And if you're a learner, then you're a disciple and you can make disciples. There's two other things I want to tell you tonight about discipleship. And these are things you get by observing the life of Jesus. There are two simple steps to making a disciple. Number one, it happens through relationship. Are you there? So you've got to be able to make friends, whether they're inside or outside the church. To make a disciple, you have to be in relationship with people. And I'll explain why that's important. And Jesus also, and I'm just following the example of Jesus here. He had relationship. Let's talk about the 12 disciples. He had a friendship and a relationship with them. He travelled with them. He ate with them. He slept in the same hotels with them. You know, they just did everything together for three and a half years. And so the, the first key is that you must be able to be in relationship with people. And the second one is you do it in a small group. That's what Jesus did. And it wasn't like that he had small group meetings necessarily. He was just in relationship with a small group of people that he travelled with. So, you know, he didn't have lectures with his disciples. He taught them, but he didn't have an official curriculum. In fact, there were no books. There were no Bibles. The Bible, the New Testament has not been written at this time. So there are no Bibles at all. Most people can't read. The only Bible you'll find is the Old Testament and that is locked under chain and key at the synagogue. No one went to church with a Bible under their arm in the early church. I mean, we scold people for coming to church without their Bibles, but none of the disciples had a Bible. Shocking. The printing press was not invented until the 1400s. So everyone having a book or a study course was just not available. Am I making sense to you here? You know, we're all looking for where's the, where's the course I can use to make a disciple? What's the study material we use? Listen, forget about the study material. It's good, yes, but you don't need it to make a disciple. It happens through relationship in small groups. Some of you are parents here. How many of you know you never give your kids a study course on obedience? <laughs> that will go over well, like a lead balloon. You know, you don't announce to the kids, well, kids, this Saturday morning at 10 a.m., oh, sharp, I'll be providing Coke and chips and we're going to be having Obedience 101 class in the living room. That will go down really well, wouldn't it? No, you don't teach kids like that. Well, I wasn't taught like that. If you were, poor you. I was not taught like that. I got taught obedience when I was disobeying. Hello? <laughs> and boy, did I get taught. You know, the Board of Education for the Seat of Learning back in those days. My, my dad's number 10 boot fair up my backside, you know. That's how I learnt obedience. 
I learnt it on the spot when I was disobeying. There were no classes for obedience. There were no classes for manners. You know, you just taught them through relationship. And I can tell you this, but that most of the values that I learnt were not from listening to my father, but watching my father. Hello? And I can tell you now that most of your discipleship teaching will not be from the books that you put in front of people and put under their nose. It'll be by the life that you live in front of them. Someone say amen. For example, you know, we value giving in the church. And it will come up sooner or later if you've got a new Christian with you, you bring him to church and they're standing behind, beside you and that bag goes past. What's that for? Oh, well, we've got a bit of a sweep going. No, it's not for that. You know, we're not collecting side bets on how long the pastor's sermon will be, you know. <laughs> so you explain, you say, you know, well, we, we follow the scriptural teaching in the Bible about giving a percentage of our money to the church. Oh, right. So the, the information goes in. So next Sunday... You know, the bag comes past again. Your new convert puts his money and you're standing there with your arms folded and you don't put anything in. And your friend says, how come you didn't put something in? Yeah, I didn't like the pastor's sermon last week. <laughs> Which lesson are they going to learn? <laughs> are they going to learn from what you told them the week before or what you've done this week? Eh? They're watching you. You know, most of my values in Christian faith I've learned from two or three people, people that I've looked up to. You know, I've been to some incredible meetings over the years. I've been to, anyone remember that bloke Rodney Howard Pink or Brown? What was his name? Rodney Howard Brown, the laughing revivalist from South Africa. You know, I've been to lots of fantastic meetings but I can honestly stand here and say to you that my development as a believer did not come from special meetings. I enjoyed them, but my development as a disciple of Christ came by following men and women of God that I admired, by watching their lives, by copying their values. And that's what discipleship is. Is this making sense to you tonight? It's not a hard thing to do. You know, in the book of Acts, again, uh, we find they start uh, multiplying disciples and, and uh, planting churches all over the, the known world. And that's a whole different subject. But we know that when they did that, they had, no, they had no training material to take with them. They had no denominational structure. Paul left pastors in charge of new churches that have never been to Bible school. He couldn't ring up Alpha Crucis and say, well, I've got a new church at Galatia, can you send me a pastor? No such organisation existed. He would choose someone out of his new disciples, maybe three or four months old in the Lord, and say, okay, you're the pastor. No credentialing, nothing. Now, I'm not saying that's all bad, it's all good, but I'm just saying they had so little. They didn't have a mobile phone for crying out loud. How can you do the ministry without a mobile phone? Or a computer? Of course, if you live in Sri Lanka, every pastor has a motorbike. And so, you know, you can't really do the ministry without a motorbike. And you've got to have fallen off it at least one or two times. 
So I had a bike accident last year and I feel very much like a Sri Lankan pastor now. I'm quite proud of myself. But we, we get this idea we need all these things. You know, I need some money. I need this special program. I need this special building, this special room. You know, I need these special materials. You don't need any of that. It's all good stuff. I'm not saying it's bad. We shouldn't burn the building down. <laughs> don't tell Pastor James that. We shouldn't be building, burning buildings down. That's not what I'm saying. But I'm saying the simplicity of making disciples is all about relationship in small groups. Is this making sense to you tonight? So you should be sitting there thinking, I can do this. I can do this. Now, of course, if you can't make friends, you need to come out on the altar call tonight and have prayer because there's something wrong with you. If you can't make friends and be a nice person, I have this theory that Christians should be nice. It's pretty out there, I know. It's an outlandish thought. But we should be the best people in the community. People should like hanging around us. Have you ever met those people you try and avoid them? You know, you see them walking down the street and you duck into a shop. Well, if you're like that person who people avoid, you can't make disciples. There's something wrong with you. You need to get fixed up. You've got to be nice people. You've got to be friendly people. You know, sometimes Christians are unhappy. Unbelievers look at us and we say, you need to become a Christian. And they look at us and say, and look like you. No, thanks. I've got enough troubles without getting what you've got. You're not happy. So we've got to be the best people, you know, the, most, the happiest people on earth. We've got to be the friendliest. We've got to reach out and spend time with people. This is the criteria for making disciples. It's so simple. And I think we've got to get back to that. You know, there's a wonderful verse I, I often read at this time when I'm teaching, and it's in Matthew chapter 4 and verse 19. And you'll probably know it quite well. It's simply Jesus says, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. You've heard that verse before? What's Jesus talking about? Discipleship. That's what he's talking about. When did he say these words? He said them the day he called his disciples to follow him. He didn't say, follow me, fellas, finish this study course, you know, um, wear your collar back to front and all this stuff and you'll be able to make disciples. He said, follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. So the only thing he asked them to do was to follow, to be in relationship with him. And he said, if you do that, I'll make you fishers of men. And in that verse, there are three simple relationships that I think are important when you talk about following Jesus. Do you want to hear them? No? Okay. Number one, he says, follow me. So what is that? That's a relationship with Jesus. True? That's a simple relationship with Jesus. I'm going to ask you now, how do you, how do you build your relationship with Jesus? Any suggestions? Pray, read the Bible, 
We've got Bibles, we can read them. I think pray and read the Bible is a good place to start. It builds our relationship with Jesus. How simple is that? So, you know, in, in the terms of the disciples, they followed Jesus, they heard his teaching, they chatted with him on a daily basis. There's the prayer, and they listened to his teaching. And of course, you understand then that the learning process in the Hebrew culture was a very oral learning process. They learned by repetition, by repeating things, by you know, just knowing things by repetition because nothing was written down for the average person to have. When it talks about in the early church that they were you know, involved in, in small groups teaching the apostles, teaching from house to house, that's exactly what was happening. It was all oral. There were no books, no records, nothing. They just passed on what they'd heard Jesus say. So your first and probably most important relationship in being a disciple is to be a follower of Jesus by praying and reading the Scriptures. Is that easy enough to do? Who could do that? Anybody? Three people. Excellent. Now, I know the rest of you had your hands up in your heart. You just couldn't get it really up. You know, rigor mortis is set into the right arm. So, you know, we can all do that. It's so simple. The second relationship that's in that verse is not really stated, but it's implied in that he called a group to follow him. It wasn't just one person. In this case, he's calling a number of fishermen to follow him. So, and of course, he gave the example of, you know, training and teaching his followers uh, in a small group, 12 people. And for those of you that are leaders and worried about that group of 12, Jesus lost one of them. And he's the best leader I've ever known. So don't be too hard on yourself if you lose one or two in the journey. Jesus lost one. He didn't want to learn. He didn't want to follow. So we do it in the context of a small group or in relationships with other people. It doesn't necessarily mean the pastor needs to get up and organise all the small groups. If you and three or four mates get together for a cup of coffee every week, it's an unofficial discipleship group. Hello. You don't have to wait for some of the church to organise it for you. I mean, there's probably going to be a lot of discipleship group happenings this week anyway. Is anyone playing coffee with some friends? There you go, discipleship. You're in relationship in a small group. You're impacting someone else's life. All right? It's not about having an official Bible study to do. It's just about hanging out with friends. You know, my wife and I sat down um, a couple of years ago. and We looked back our many years in ministry and we looked at each other and said, what is the most fruitful thing we have ever done in our 30 plus years of ministry. And you know, we both came up with the same thing. And it's a small group. Let me tell you how it began and what the agenda of that small group was. We had three teenage kids at the time and, you know, we thought we should do the right thing and have a, a night with the kids. Busy church life, so we thought, Monday night will be family night We'll make a special meal, get the kids to sit down with us. You know, we asked the kids to put that night aside. We had dinner with them most nights, but this was our family night. And after about a month or six weeks of that, the kids came to us and said, Dad, this is pretty boring. You know, kids will tell you, won't they? They'll just tell you. Incidentally, those of you that have teenage parents or older, you know what my kids do now? 
they make videos of themselves mocking their father and send them to each other. All your mannerisms, yeah, it'll happen if it hasn't happened already in a good-natured way. So they said to us, Dad, can we each bring a friend? Oh, it sounds like the price is right or something like that. Yes, you can bring a friend. So each one of my kids bought a friend. And so our group expanded to eight. Three kids, three friends and us. And we just, we had no agenda about having a discipleship group. We just ate and laughed. Occasionally the Bible was discussed. We did say grace so the food was protected. (laughs) But we didn't have hours of prayer or hours of Bible study. There was no agenda like that. And then pretty soon other kids in the church heard about this, particularly uni students are always starving. And <laughs> does anyone understand what I'm saying here? Yes. I see some starving. Yes, yes, yes. I understand the lack of meat on your bones now, my son. And, you know, so they heard about it and said, oh, can we come? And I'm thinking, this is no longer a family night. And so one or two uni students started to come. My wife used to cook curries or spaghetti bog or whatever. We'd spend the entire week's budget on food for one night and eat leftovers for the rest of the week. And so the group grew to 30 plus. And, you know, they would just arrive at any time and go at any time. And uh, the meal was on around about 6.37. And, of course, you know, it was all by invitation. You, you didn't just turn up. And so one young man would hear that a young lady he was interested in was part of the group. So he would get himself an invitation, if you know what I mean. Many romances blossomed in that group. And that group went on for some years where we would just sit together, have a meal, maybe even play some weird, you know, charades or something. There was a lot of laughing went on. And you know... It's since disbanded because we're no longer the pastor of that church. But we looked back on those times and we thought about all the young people that came to that group and we can honestly say not one of those young people is outside the kingdom of God. They're all in the kingdom of God. Some of them are in ministry full-time. There's all sorts of stuff have come out of that. Believe it or not, that was a discipleship group. Why? Because it had relationship and it was a group. I was influencing their lives. Now I did have DMs with one, you know, with most of them over the years, quite a number of DMs, but never at the group. We never had a Bible study or a curriculum. Now I'm not against all that stuff, you understand tonight. I'm not preaching against that. I'm just saying the simplicity of a discipleship group is simply influencing the lives of others in a positive direction towards Christ. Is that making sense to you? And for us, it was all about food. Food is a great gatherer of people. Everybody's hungry, particularly university students. (laughs) Then there was the Macca's run, you know. Someone would be nominated to go to Macca's for sweets and bring back several... Sundays, which would drip in the car. Oh, look, there's just maniac stories that went on and on and on. And uh, we still know lots of those young people. They're around the 
You know, there's doctors, there's lawyers all over the country. And whenever we asked them, we did this experiment, we rang a lot of them up, we said, in all your time at our church, what do you think was the best thing you were ever part of? And without exception, they said, Monday night at your place. Wow. The only preparation we did for that was cook. Hello. It didn't burn anybody out. It was just a bunch of believers and unbelievers came from time to time and were part of that. And my wife and I said to ourselves recently, when we retire and stop travelling, we're going to do it again. It was so much fun. And I remember being the uni student, even though I was never a uni student, on the receiving end of groups like that in my home church and how they blessed me and inspired me to grow. Discipleship is about relationships in a small group. And the third relationship mentioned in that verse is I will make you fishers of men. It's about relationships with unbelievers. Most Christians are good at the relationship with Jesus, relationship with each other, but not so good at the relationship with unbelievers. But here's this thing that I did some years ago. I, th- I said, I'm going to read the Gospels, all four of them, and I'm going to find out who Jesus spent all his time with. And outside of his disciples, he spent most of his other time with unbelievers. Hello? He wasn't doing church meetings. Where was the Sermon on the Mount? Was it in a church? There were mostly unbelievers sitting on the side of a hill. When he preached out of the boat, who was listening? Mostly unbelievers. When Matthew got saved, Matthew was a tax collector, one of the most despised people in the community. Nothing's changed. So Matthew, you know, he got saved. He met Jesus. His life was transformed. And the first thing he wanted to do was invite all his tax collecting friends to his house and invite Jesus to be the guest of honour. How cool is that? When, you know, Zacchaeus, the little short bloke's up the tree and Jesus stops down the bottom of the tree and says, hi, Zacchaeus. What you doing up there, buddy? He says, well, I'm just trying to get a good look. He says, well, come down out of there. I'm coming to your place for dinner tonight. He gets there and there's no believers there. It's all unbelievers. It's all tax collectors and pub owners and prostitutes and all sorts of other people, all sorts of undesirables that you wouldn't want. And they're having a meeting with them. Jesus was often outnumbered. You know, normally if we invite an unbeliever, we want Christians to unbelievers about 10 to 1, (laughs) just to make it safe. But you know, some of our relationship building should be with unbelievers as well. Because that's what Jesus did. I, I challenge you, read the Gospels and find out how much time Jesus spent with unbelievers. Not preaching at them. The only people he preached at were the religious nuts in the synagogue. He rebuked them. But he just had compassion for the unbelievers. And he didn't try and tell them how to live their lives. He just tried to get them to have a spiritual encounter and become transformed on the inside. You know, you and I are not meant to be the conscience of Gladstone and tell all the sinners what they're doing wrong. They know it. They don't need us to tell them. We just got to love them, become friends with them. And you know, you can use something that you love 
to make friendships with unbelievers. Some people think you've got to walk down the street with a fistful of tracks and stuff under people's noses. I've never been good at that. If you can do that, God bless you. It's not my skill. One of the things I love to do is ride motorcycles. And so I've tried to use that as a tool. I put someone on the back and scare... No, that's not true. But I remember some years ago, I, uh, my cousin rang me and said, my daughter's living in Townsville and she's living with a boyfriend. The relationship's busting up. Can you go and help her? I said, sure. So I go around there and I see motorbikes parked in the front yard. He's a motorbike rider. She's a motorbike rider. So I'm helping this girl run away from her bike riding boyfriend. And he was much bigger than me, I can tell you that. But I had compassion for him. He was upset and crying and everything else. And so I said, you know, I know I'm taking your girlfriend away from him, but why don't we meet for a coffee at Macca's tomorrow? And let's talk. So we came. I told him about Jesus. We organised a bike ride. Had a few bike rides together. Came to church, became a believer. Still following Jesus. Hello. <laughs> that wasn't hard, was it? It wasn't hard at all. We just gathered together around something we both loved, riding motorcycles. I was building a relationship with an unbeliever. And you know, every Wednesday morning after he became a believer, I met him at a coffee shop and we just had coffee, talked about bikes and Jesus, Jesus and bikes. And uh, he's still well established in a church, not in Townsville anymore. Found a lovely girl, married her. Hallelujah. It wasn't hard. All I had to do was make a friend. I didn't have to preach at him, giving Bible studies. I did all that. You know, we had Bible studies together. I helped him to grow. But the thing that connected him with Jesus was our relationship together. Is this making sense to anyone tonight? Or I'm just raving on like some southern lunatic here out the front. It's all good? Yes. Hallelujah. Let me just finish up now. And I think that, you know, we've often put this discipleship thing as something that happens after someone becomes a believer. Okay, we've got a new believer. We need to teach them discipleship. We need to make a disciple. I believe that discipleship happens from your first meeting. Hello? It's, it's got nothing about saying the sinner's prayer before you become a disciple. If you're influencing someone and helping them to learn about Jesus before they become a believer, then you're making a disciple right from the beginning of that time. Does that make sense to you? You don't have to wait for them to come out and say the sinner's prayer. You start discipling them straight away. That's what Jesus did. On the first meeting with people, he influenced them towards God. And that's what discipleship is all about. So I want to encourage you here tonight. This is a simple message. It's a message that burns in my heart. I'm very passionate about it. I want to encourage you to make disciples. And again, let's go back to that definition. you just got to be a learner. Build those three relationships. Hang out with people. Make friends inside, outside the church. My life is what it is today because of the influence of a handful of people I've been in relationship with. And your story would be exactly the same. My dad was influenced in his early days just by a few people that helped him to grow through their relationship and their discussions. 
You see, everyone, every believer needs to make disciples. We can't excuse ourselves from the job because Jesus commissioned every one of us to go into all the world and make disciples. And I've hope that you can see it's not difficult tonight. It's not an official job given to you by the pastor. It's a job given to you by Jesus. And all you're going to do is make relationships and hang out with people and you're already making disciples. Is that cool? Hallelujah. Let's stand up and we'll pray. Praise the Lord. Father, we thank you tonight for the simplicity of your word. We thank you, Lord, for the commission to go into all the world and make disciples. And Lord, we pray you would help us to look beyond the man-made image of what a disciple maker can be and what a disciple is. And help us to see in your word clearly the simplicity of this role you've asked us to do. So Father, tonight afresh, we commit ourselves to the commission you've given us, the great commission to go into all the world and make disciples. Lord, there is a myriad of people around every one of us tonight. Help us to connect with them, to build friendships with them, whether they be inside the church, outside the church, in our families, and positively influence them on their journey of walking with Jesus. So Father, we commit ourselves to this task tonight and we ask for your anointing and your help in the name of Jesus. And everybody said, Amen. Amen. God bless you. Thanks, Pastor. Hey, thanks, Peter. Can we have the uh, music team back up, please? That'll be fantastic. Uh, yeah, you might as well stay standing because you can get up a minute. It's, uh, thanks, Peter. That's refreshing to be reminded again that simplicity is good. <laughs> Looks like I'll have to get a few more coffee things going this week. Do my best, yeah. <laughs> so you guys can too. Naomi, congratulations. You ducked off when I did the big... The big official one, yeah, you're out of the building, but that's okay. You're back. <laughs> it's, uh, I mean, it's, it's pretty simple really, isn't it? I, I like, I'm sure most of us would know where, um, who was it, Peter that mucked up. He denied Jesus three times and then a little while later they were at the beach and Jesus pulls him aside and three times says, you know, do you love me? And, yeah, yeah, yeah. And Peter's starting to get a bit, oh, you know, I do, I do. Of course I do. And uh, he said, well, you know, a few times you'd follow me. And then Peter decides, well, you know, what about that disciple over there? Jesus said, don't you worry about him. You follow me. Let's not follow someone else. Just follow Jesus. And keep it simple. We all know the kiss theory. No? Keep it simple, stupid. <laughs> Sometimes I'm nice and just do one less, but that's what it is. Keep it simple. We like to complicate things, don't we, for some reason. I don't know whether what that is. Whether, no, I don't know what that is. So, uh, yeah, just make sure you have coffee with at least 10 people this week. Whether you do it together in one shot or <laughs> where's the jam bar man? You might get a <laughs> free... no, oh no, I nearly said free coffee at the jam bar, but I better not. <laughs> Thanks again, Peter, and we've appreciated your ministry last night with the men and.
this morning and tonight. It's been fantastic. It's been great having you with us. Thank you for giving your time to come here. It's been much appreciated. Let's sing.